Hi everyone, welcome back to The Color in Art, a podcast that explores the field of art through the lens of diversity and inclusion. Last episode you heard from Anu Mysore who discussed her experiences and journey as a South Indian multifaceted artist. Please listen to that episode if you haven't already. Today I'm speaking with Jennifer Brown, an entrepreneur and artist who is a member of the LGBTQ community. In this episode, she shares important advice and information regarding DEI in the arts industry. Enjoy. Okay, the recording has started. So I just wanted to start with your name and pronouns and what your profession is. And do you have any aspect of your identity that you'd like to share? Yeah, sure. So Jennifer Brown, she, her pronouns. And uh, I identify as a member of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, which is probably the, mm, one of the more important things to know about me, my partner, Michelle, for 25 years, and we have, uh, lots of fur babies. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And what do you, um, either past profession or current profession and like, what are your hobbies, passions, and how did you get into your form of art? Did you have any motivations? Hmm. Well, so form of art is an interesting question. Uh, depends what we call art, which of course is what this is about. Um, so I grew up in a very musical family. And uh, so I was singing, dancing, choirs, um, traveling to sing, um, always on stage with musical parents also. So I was raised like that was a big, big part of my life and a really formative thing for me, I think, from a everything from a stage presence perspective to confidence to, you know, the way that music um, wires your brain as you grow. And um, then I pursued that art in uh, grad school with a degree in operatic vocal performance um, in my late 20s in New York City, which was a dream and amazing that I could do that. And then, uh, but then unfortunately I had to stop singing ultimately, because my voice just wouldn't cooperate. And I had surgery several times to fix things that injuries that kept on happening chronically. Uh, and then I kind of put it to the side, put music to the side and, but would ultimately utilize all of my stage craft and, um, improvisational ability, you know, unbeknownst to me, but ultimately someday to become a keynote speaker and somebody who is on stage for a living now. Uh, but just speaking, speaking something different and um, working on something different. I think that's, that is an art, you know, writing books and teaching people about this topic that is very important to me, um, but doing it in a way that, you know, encourages people along, invites them on the journey, does not create defensiveness, is honestly an art. So I think I'm probably still an artist, but in that broader sense. Was there um, ever an initial fear of, being in the arts industry due to any aspect of your identity or was that not really an issue at that time? You know, it's interesting. I came out when I was 22 and then I was singing all through my twenties and performing and pretty, pretty out, but I wasn't pro, I wasn't professional. And then when I went to music school in New York, I wasn't closeted at school, but I think I, I never really got far enough to know if it would have hurt me uh, if my career had really gotten big. I just, I don't, I don't know if I, you know, knew that. Um, but I was absolutely worried about how I would be cast or not cast or, 
bias um, uh, in terms of just me being able to have a a very public career, particularly because my style of voice is always playing the character of like the love interest, the young sister, the young bride. There's all these kind of heterosexual, like young heterosexual woman um, frameworks and, and personas. And it was a bit odd because I could kind of hide in plain sight. Like the way I express my gender is very feminine normative. And so in many, many ways, I, I fit the type. But, you know, I I knew, you know, that my life was different than that. And I, you know, loved who I loved and, you know, was a big part of that community. Really, really proud of my activism in that community too, which I was, I was also engaged in in my 20s. So I, I think this... I don't know if it was a collision course, but I'm not sure it ever really, it, I never got far enough that I could see what would actually happen. You know, I felt really supported at school and very much like I could be, you know, I was an actor, a singing actor. So of course I could play anything, but um, yeah, I just, I wasn't around long enough to really find out. <laughs> I anticipate it might've been a problem though, because it was the nineties and early aughts. Mm, yeah. I, I feel like um, that's a different type of experience. And I'm sure um, in other aspects of your life, if you've ever experienced that or any ways that this art community has impacted your life or regarding DEI in art, like what has your experience, expertise, uh, what do you have to share about it regarding art in that field? There's so much work. There's so much DEI work that needs to happen in the performing arts particularly in classical music, which is what I studied. And uh, from casting to uh, raising up writers and composers and arrangers and instrumentalists, um, you know, each, each arena of music as a profession has like a different diversity challenge to it. Um, like conductors, right? Like have, has it have like a gender challenge? Um, Jazz jazz performers are very male dominated. Um, accompanists and professional pianists are female dominated. You know, anyway, it's just really interesting to kind of dig in and realize like who is missing from each category, and also the constraints of the old the operas that we were performing. I mean, it was just so so tricky to have such like an old historical um, plots and characters and like bring a modern sensibility to it that there's, you know, there's a real need for new pieces or, or old pieces to be reimagined. Um, but the gender roles are really structured and really, really narrow. So they, they have a lot of work to do. Yeah. I think you still are part of the change, whether it, even in a different community, I think like being a, a head of a DEI consulting company is like, uh, way past the change that you may have done if you were in your previous position. I think that's a huge part. And that leads me to my next question. Like, how, what, uh, how has DEI um, in your life, how has it impacted you? And how do you think that can be applied to the arts? I, I know that you mentioned that before, but would you be able to explain like how that has been in your life? Yeah, well, my music school now has a whole DEI team and committee and effort and uh, they have all kinds of initiatives going on that are trying to center new creators, trying to challenge um, casting decisions, 
Um, so, so I do think, I mean, any institution should be focused on this and music schools and theaters, right. And performing arts organizations. And I mean, there's, there's so much work to be done. So, you know, they're, they're going through, I think the same work that we would recommend our, our corporate clients go through, you know, which is to evaluate, like, are we missing opportunities to connect with new audiences and who do we need to feature or recruit or uh, foster to draw in, you know, attention to our art form? Um, those are fundamental questions for every institution. And it's exactly the same questions that, you know, a company that makes things, you know, is asking and should be asking. Companies, I'm sorry, uh, music institutions have to look at their staff. They have to look at their board. They have to look at their uh, constituents and they need to think about the future and how they're going to continue to remain viable and grow in a diversifying world. You know, what does that world want to see and hear? How do they want to interact with that institution? And how far behind is the institution on any of those fronts? And that's really the work of DEI is to look at the gap and then close the gap kind of going off that do you what have in your consulting space and what have you done to close that gap like um different actions you've taken steps you've taken would you be able to describe one situation or several or uh what you've done to close a gap in the DEI field I've had the company for like 20 years and um we've I've you know I grew it from me and and expanded my team and over the years it's been really important for us to diversify our our team with all identity as many identities as possible to be represented so represented so that's important um and then we've also obviously i mean our work is to kind of know the issues know what's going on so not just like you know put out in social media things that are programming that are important to the community for people to learn but also to get feedback internally in our organization about, you know, is this a, an inclusive place to work? If not, what can we do to change it? Um, and getting that feedback and then putting resources towards it. So making sure we have, you know, things like health insurance, things like um, ways to put money aside with what's called, you know, retirement plans and profit sharing um, there's certain benefits we offer, like mental health benefits that are really important that I hope people are using, although it's really confidential. But things that small companies are, are very usually very expensive for small companies to offer, we've we've dug deep and really offered them. And I think this is a way to be equitable. But it's it's much more difficult when you're smaller to do all the things that we then turn around and tell larger companies to do because they have so many resources, but we've never really used that as an excuse. Um, so those are some of the things that we do to walk the talk, as we say. Nice. Yeah. And um, this is kind of going back to your um, experience in the performing arts, but was there ever a stigma about pursuing your profession or passion within your own community? Was there ever a stigma? Um, well... I mean, you know, when you sign up to be an artist, uh, you're going to have to really struggle economically. Um, I don't know if that's a stigma. I think uh, it's just a struggle. Um, so I think the ramifications of that, again, I kind of didn't get far enough along to know. 
I was in my 20s. So when you're, you know this, when you're young, you don't need much. At least we didn't need much back then. I don't know about kids now. But um, but for me, it was worth it. The stigma of, you know, pursuing your dream when it's not very, like, when it's hard economically. Um, certainly, I, had, I mean, I'm sure I had stigma in my own family because I don't think they really wanted me to pursue that, although they were the ones that had introduced me to the performing arts. Um, and I have it in my genes. Like, we're just all very musical. So... Uh, I think there's a level when you choose a career in the arts that your parents worry about you, um, that, you know, in some cases they want you to do it in other cases they don't. Uh, so there's that. And then, you know, I think it was difficult to, I mean, stigma is an interesting word. I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't think that's the right word. I mean, the stigma around being LGBTQ is a whole different thing. I mean, that's the stigma follows you around on that with whatever workplace you find yourself in, whether it's performing arts or when I pivoted out of performing arts and then got a series of jobs as an employee in different companies trying to kind of rebuild a new life and a new profession. I was closeted for many years, um, was not out to my colleagues. And it took me, you know, it took me a long time to really own all of who I was. And it pretty much helped to become an entrepreneur because then you can really, then you can really call your own shots when you have your own company because you can't get fired for being LGBTQ. So, uh, so that I think the least stigma I have felt about being in that community was, has been more recently when I've worked for myself uh, but in the nineties and, and the aughts, when I was, you know, an employee of a company, I was really at the mercy of, of that company and what they, what the environment was like for people like me and how we had to hide to really to survive. Um, and of course that's evolved over time, but we really have to keep in mind that people of a certain age group coped with this. It was a very different reality. And, you know, it was a hard, there were many, many hard decisions and very unpleasant situations and um, that we were all put in. But, you know, this is not unique to LGBTQ people. This is also people of color. This is uh, women. This is anybody with disabilities. Like, you know, I, I like to say the workplace was not built by and for many of us. And so it doesn't work for us. And as such, it sort of takes a toll to try to thrive in those systems. And so that was true for me on several on several levels as I tried to kind of reinvent into a, a new profession. Yeah, and I can't even imagine like how much of a, as growing up both in the performing arts and in the corporate world, like how much of um, either a barrier like that can pose, especially um, back then in that time. And in going off of that, do, do you have like a specific story or situation in which you've felt different, I mean, viewed differently or um, discriminated as a bit of a, a neg- like a too much of a harsh connotation? But if you felt like that, th- any story where your identity has negatively or positively contributed both in the corporate or performing arts world, is a story you could share? Well, I think that when you have to come out, uh, you develop a lot of courage and a lot of resilience. Um, 
So, and you have to kind of make your own, uh, what's the word? Like create your own like system that you can thrive in and, you know, be happy in, you know, because you're getting all these messages from the outside world. So I do, I am, I do really believe that like I'm a stronger person because of the fear that I had to face and the potential loss that I had to face of not getting cast or, you know, potentially like I didn't know, like, like losing the love of my family or losing a job because, you know, somebody found out who I was. Like, I think facing that builds a tremendous strength and resilience and bravery. And so I'm, I'm just very grateful for it. And I think it also brought, you know, made me, obviously it makes me a much more effective person now in my profession because it's a lived experience that I can reference very directly. And when you have those, the paths that you've been walking and you've really analyzed them, you've really thought about them, they become incredible teaching tools. And this, you know, how I identify has, has um, equipped me to have those conversations in a much more nuanced way, in a more kind of authentically true way for me. And, you know, I've drawn on that experience to teach and to build psychological safety around me because it's very important to me that other people feel that. Um, you know, for, for many of us, you know, it's not that long ago and it's still today that we don't feel safe. So I think, you know, safety is really important to me and it's something that I think I'm pretty good at building now uh, because it's something that I needed. So when it's something you need and you didn't experience, I think you can spend many years getting extremely good at how to build it around you, but also build it for others so that it doesn't, doesn't need to happen to them in the same way that it happened to you. And that's really the essence of leave, leaving a legacy, leaving something better than you found it for future generations. And I think we're all kind of, all of us that have suffered and been a part of a marginalized identity, I think we all want that to change generation to generation. Yeah. And professionally, what does a typical day look like for you when you're building plans for different companies or um, strategizing for like promoting DEI? Like what specific um, plans do you have for them and what do you think could be applied to the arts industry? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, the arts industry has organizations in it just like the companies we work with. In fact, we do work with some arts organizations too, but not not a lot. I'd like to work with more. But, you know, they you just sort of swap out like, I don't even know, like the audience members for, you know, in arts organizations um, or members within the for-profit wor corporate world with customers, for example. So it's really just a matter of, you know, in, you know, institutions have staff, institutions have boards, institutions have users, if you will. Um, so, you know, the, the, like I was saying earlier, the gaps that you identify in your institution and within each of those areas to say, we need to do better here. We need to, you know, our staff is all one identity or all one of two identities. And it doesn't really look like, you know, the, the audience we want to attract, um, our repertoire 
you know, isn't fresh or innovative. Um, our audience is drying up, you know, why? Um, and, uh, our students, if it's a arts organization with students involved, like, are we getting a diverse pipeline of students coming into the school? Why or why not? Once they get into the school, you know, what are they studying? Where do they gravitate to, you know, and is that because of, you know, they're going to go where they see other role models that look like them? And how does the institution then challenge, I think, challenge the the people within it to think more broadly about their potential, about where they could play, about what, you know, what roles they could play, what instruments they could play. Um, you know, I think the institution's job is to really broaden us beyond our own biases, perhaps like how you know, if I grew up thinking I was always going to be a classical pianist, you know, what if I discover jazz when I'm, you know, in conservatory? Um, if I thought I never could play a role because of my gender identity, what if I could play that role at school? So there are ways arts institutions can not only diversify their sort of internal constituents, but also I think lead the conversation on how the arts in general needs to change and diversify and be proactively inclusive. So it's not enough to just react to the way changes are happening because you're in, you'll inevitably make mistakes if you're not planning ahead on this. Um, and not just make mistakes, but you may really fail as an institution. Uh, and the arts have to be, you know, dynamic. They have to be, you know, I, I think actually they have to be very cutting edge given what, where they focus. You know, they're not making toothpaste. <laughs> um, they're, they're really, their job is to capture the moment and in the way the arts do sort of show us ourselves and show, uh, show where we're going and, and shine a light on human truths. But making sure that like, as many human truths as possible are illuminated in that process and not just all of the truths of one group of people. And unfortunately, historically, the arts have been dominated by money. The arts have been dominated by people who have power. Um, and there's been a mismatch in particular between the administration of an arts organization and the artists or students and maybe the audience, um, the future audience of that institution. So that's also a gap that has to be addressed. <clears throat> and there should be goals set for representation. You know, they should be very specific, very actionable, and they should have some kind of expectation of time to be, for progress to be seen. So that it's not just like fuzzy and, you know, statements about, oh, we intend to do this, or we hope that this happens, or you know, here's where we want to be, but I would want to know, well, what are you actually doing to implement this? And how are you tracking yourself against that goal? And when will you be able to show an improvement? So I think they have to hold themselves accountable. Um, just like we tell all the institutions that we work with to hold themselves accountable. And we're here on the outside as a consulting partner to help decide what those goals are, help an organization close the gap, and make a like a realistic plan to progress. You know how you know there's no there's no kind of magic timeline or destination. I don't think you reach an end 
goal, I think it's constantly evolving because the the world is constantly changing. So what institutions have to do is set those goals, but then like be willing to, you know, morph along with the speed of change at the same time, as long as they're moving forward. Yeah. And that's a really well said. I think as long as they're, I feel like representation itself is really important when you're in the field. So you someone to look up to who like is embodies what you want to be and also looks like you and is not as just like one group of people. And like how that kind of goes to my next question, how important like for you has it been to have representation of someone with your identity in the same field of like growing up? Like has that been influential in your life? Well, there weren't a lot of Certainly there are a lot of female singers, obviously, but there weren't a lot of LGBTQ performers that were in the opera world and the music theater world. And so it was very, very influential, not in a good way, I think, to feel that I needed to fit into a norm that I saw. Now, whether that was true or not, I think perception is reality. And this is the problem when people aren't out or they're closeted and they're trying to live this public life or create this image that, you know, you assume that nobody identifies as you do and it discourages you um, or makes you afraid that, you know, you, nobody's ever broken through. And for some of us that might be energizing, but for others of us, it's, it's intimidating. So I think it was a bummer that I didn't like see anyone who was out who was living the professional life that I wanted as a musician. Um, I certainly knew a ton of gay men <laughs> in the choral world uh, as a, as a choir person and certainly in music theater, but there weren't, there just weren't a lot of out women, identified women. Um, and then in the DNI world that I pivoted into, um, there's always been a great diversity of identities that do this work. Uh, including white people, including women and men, cisgender, trans, gender non-binary, people of color, disabilities. Um, so the, the field is extremely diverse. And so that's never been, that's really never been an issue. I mean, lately I am very aware of my ethnicity and the way that it, um, it's, you know, limited in sort of in terms of my own lived experience as a teacher. But I also think that there's room for each one of us as a messenger in the work. And, um, you know, I think that there's a need for different identities to be teaching on the topic so that different people can see themselves and connect into the message and get on board. Uh, and so there's no shortage of work to be done. And I think we need as many identities of messengers as we can get. So I don't think how I identify has hurt me. And like I said earlier, being LGBTQ has helped me because it's an identity that I can directly uh, reference and gives me some credibility around, you know, what I've been through and what I've had to sort out and how it feels to be on the outside of a system and what that stigma feels like to carry with you every single day and, and being able to communicate that is, has been really invaluable as a teacher. 
have you seen an institutional change or progress in addressing the struggles faced by minorities in the arts industry? And if you do believe that, like, what have they done specifically to make it more equitable? <sighs> I mean, I, I wish I were closer to it. I'm not in that world anymore, but I do think I am seeing a diversification of staff and board members and repertoire and casting decisions. But unfortunately, I just am not in that world anymore. And I, I would know more if I were. I know I, I, I don't know if you ask somebody if it were, if they felt like they are of a non-traditional identity in opera, for example, or music theater, whether they're getting more roles, whether they're, you know, they're able to be cast beyond, you know, what people see about their identity. I would imagine it's still very, very slow going. And I would imagine it's very slow going for, you know, non-traditional creators, writers, composers, arrangers who, you know, for all the reasons we know are not, not a part of, you know, the, the most sort of elite circles that propel, propel you socioeconomically into the best schools which propels you into knowing all the right people, which propels you into like an inside track to get hired. You know, I think that that just like every institution in every industry, there's still that sort of inside track of privilege that, you know, I'm sure um, is very slow to change. So I'm hoping that that is changing and that someday we will not be having this conversation, but I think we're probably in the, in the messy middle yeah. of it. And that was more institutionally, but on an individual level through your experiences, even in like a corporate world, what do you think we can do to promote DEI in the industry, like all industries as well as the arts industry as a whole? Um, like I know you mentioned this before, but any other individual things that we can do on our own to make that industry more equitable? Yes. So I think, um, well, we can be louder and make more noise. Um, we can be proud about who we are. We can own our identities. We can talk about them. We can, um, and I know people are doing this and I'm probably stating the obvious, but we change institutions when we want to be heard, but also like we want to also transcend the differences too and have access to all the opportunities that we haven't have had access to in the past. And so in a weird way, there's like this dichotomy that it, both things are true, where I want my difference to be important and not be erased, um, be something I can be proud of. And I can bring the wisdom from that to, you know, change hearts and minds and create aha moments and teachable moments for people around me. But then... um I also want that equitable treatment around opportunities for promotion or advancement or new jobs or like visibility or to receive um, awards and recognition. You know, I want a fair shake. I want to be considered um, in places that I haven't been. People that look like me have not been in the room. They haven't been on the list. They haven't been, you know, prioritized. So it's a very interesting, hard to describe, but to see my difference, but also to give me, you know, access to equitable opportunities. 
those two things, you know, can be true. And but I, the best institutions are prioritizing lifting up, like proactively lifting up elements of their workforce or, you know, their staff, you know, proactively like looking out for people, keeping them in the organization so they don't quit, um, investing in their career, uh, moving them along intentionally because there has to be an acknowledgement that the playing field has not been level in the past. So when sometimes I experience pushback when people with power and influence that make decisions are like, well, you're telling me I have to hire, you know, more women or more people of color. And, and, and they'll say, you know, I want to hire the best person for the job or I want to promote the best person. And I'll say, well, if you do that, you'll probably, you probably suffer from affinity bias and it's a kind of bias where I'm going to hire and promote people that look like me, you know, people that I'm comfortable with, people that went to the same school that I did, people whose family I know or whose kids know my kids or, you know, it's, we tend to kind of be in our homogeneous bubbles. So the best organizations are really pushing and the leaders within those organizations are pushing themselves to get beyond like who they're comfortable with and who whatever identity or background or education or whatever has been the most successful in something and say, no, let's give, let's broaden this pool. Let's intentionally uh, diversify it. Let's, let's, let's make a different casting decision. Let's put a leader, promote somebody who doesn't necessarily fit the mold of what the last person in this job had. Like, let's think outside the box about what's possible and extend the opportunities beyond who have has traditionally benefited from them because so much of life is an inside job you know it's who you know and it's who has your back so that's the piece that hasn't really benefited a lot of people who are not you know haven't been represented in the workplace in any workplace or in any institution for a really long time so but it does come down to I think us being elevating our voices, being ready for those opportunities, holding people accountable and our institutions accountable. And then those of us who have leadership roles to really hold ourselves and leader and institutions accountable to, you know, raise that up and to make it a priority and not just sort of intend that change happens, but actually like make it happen and measure ourselves. Like it ha we have to make it real. It's great hearing from you. And I have this question that, I may or may not, like it's not too specific to the DEI industry, but how do you feel about the presence of labels in the arts industry for identity? And like how, like that's a topic that I've talked about recently with a lot of people and there's a big debate on like if you should let labels define you, if you should let, like this can be both in arts industry or in life, like how has that discussion about labels and limited you or helped you like you mentioned before? Well, I can tell you that for my generation, which is Gen X, um, we tried to downplay our differences. We tried to hide them. So we would never have, like, I think the label was scary for us because if we claimed it, we felt that it would hold us back. So we didn't talk about our ethnicity. We didn't talk about our sexual orientation or gender, certainly gender identity or our pronouns or whatever. It, it wasn't, it was something to be hidden. 
So for my generation these days, it's very empowering actually to, for some of us, not everybody, but for some of us to claim that identity, you know, because it's been a very long journey. So for example, for a, a black soprano to now add to her bio that like she's you know, she's proud to be the, you know, have won this award for, you know, black singers, for example, or whatever. Like these are things that didn't even exist actually for some of us. There were no societies. There were no awards like that. There were no like top lists. Like that's actually a factor of like the last 10, 15 years. So, so I think though that now I think it's something to be proud of. I think it's, I think it's important to own our difference so that other generations can see us doing that and having achieved the success that we have achieved. You know, I always try to be out now, not for me, for other people to, you know, see me, to understand my success, to see me living authentically, um, and also to share my pronouns is also super important from an allyship perspective and put those in my bios and on my website. And um, so for me, I'm very proud because it's been hard won and sort of like we're at this place now where it's being celebrated. So, but you know, there is there a flip side to labels where I think there's also a fear of being only known as the black ballerina, you know, or you know, the, like, you know, and does it hold you back? Does it prevent you from being cast? Does it, do people think you're making too big of a deal about it? You know, are, do they think you're taking advantage of, I don't know, that it's trendy or something? I mean, I think there's some things that go around that I think are kind of ridiculous, but it's a matter of personal opinion. I mean, I think everybody's on their own timeline about how, how much they want to they see labels and I would say I, I prefer versus label. I prefer like the wording, like naming how I identify, like being proud of an identity that I hold because I don't know labels are, there's diversity within each label, I suppose. Right. And sometimes labels reduce our identity to like a list of, of letters like LGBTQ plus, which is an incredibly diverse group of people like mash together. So while it can be super helpful to say you're a member of a certain community or you identify as a member of a certain community or you identify as this, you identify as that, um, at the same time you want to be, you know, never pigeonholed. And so it's really up to each person, you know, how they really want to navigate that and, and how risky they think it is to be fully, to name who they are. And to be associated with a, a group of folks that have been labeled, if you will. But I, I think that to me, the benefits have always outweighed the, the risk of it. But it's easy, to, it's easy for me to say because I'm really established. You know, I'm not young in my career. You know, nobody really messes with me and who I am at this point. <laughs> um, so, but I would imagine if I were young, it would be, you know, it would be a journey that I would wrestle with and, you know, wanting to claim that community of identity, being very proud of it, and at the same time being afraid 
that associating myself too much with that label would actually take away opportunities for me to work because of people's biases, which is still, which is still very real. You know, being out and trans, like as a composer, and if you're composing classical music, how are people going to respond to you? And you have to, you have to take that in and you got to say to yourself, either I don't care. I think it's, it's, it enhances who I am and how my talents or you say to yourself, I never want anyone to know. Or you say to yourself, I don't have any choice in the matter. Like I am who I am. So I do think those, all those different avenues are still probably, you know, being navigated by a lot of different people. So it's hard to say like there's one way. I would never, I would never um, pretend to advise but for me, you know, at this age, established as I am, you know, yes, it was hard one to get here, but I'm very proud to be a part of a community and to name the communities that I am a part of, which is my preferred verbiage than labeling. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's the so many dimensions to like naming your identity and there are so many different ways to look at it and it's really interesting to see how each individual sees that and yeah I think that was my last main question and last thought is um, if you have any advice for current minorities who are in the arts industry or if you have any other last thoughts that you want to share I mean I think we have to bravely lead the way you know and I, I, I don't ever want anyone to lose the opportunities because of their identity. So, you know, but at the same time, I think we have to really change, be a part of changing the institutions we're a part of and, and also bring our most brilliant gifts and our talents and, um, you know, insist that it is important, you know, what we're creating and who we are in creating it. Um, who we are influences our art. Our lived experience is part of our story. It's part of how we express ourselves. It's part of our brilliance. And um, it is the differences that need to be better represented. So if not us, who? You know? Um, and I think that the road is rising to meet many of us, certainly not all. But if the arts can't really be a place for all of that to flourish, then I'm not sure we have a lot of hope because you know, of all the places in the world, the arts are all about expression, all about, you know, individuals creating together, all about magic happening that, you know, don't expect. And all of that comes from the creative abrasion of, of um, bringing our perspectives together and creating something that's never existed before. So if we downplay that, then we are cutting off part of our creative source. And Therefore, we're not as brilliant. Therefore, we're not, you know, contributing what the universe needs us to contribute. So if you have to make your own way or you've got to pave your own path to create, you know, the balance of needing institutions to help us thrive and help us bring our message to the world has to be balanced with being able to live authentically. And hopefully these two things come together and in a, in a beautiful marriage, um, and that institutions are ready to 
not just accept us, but to really seek different voices. And we want to be ready for that. We want to be and do our work and um, be be true to ourselves, be aligned, be focused. Um, my wish is that you know no single artist struggles with that self-worth because of identity. We will all struggle with self-worth because we're artists, right? That's always going to be true. We're always going to be perfectionists. We're always going to be really hard on ourselves. We're always going to have a super high bar. We're always going to be extremely competitive. But but from an identity perspective, my hope is that it's it's never a question that you belong somewhere. It's never a question that you know, your identity has made you feel smaller. Um, so that would be my wish. Yes. Thank you so much, uh, for your words and for speaking with me. I think, uh, I hope anyone who is listening, um, for my podcast that this will be featured on that you guys could get something from this. And I certainly did. And it was really interesting and enlightening to speak with you. Oh, thank you so much. So good to meet you. Thanks for doing the work. Once again, thank you so much to Jennifer for speaking with me, and I hope all listeners were able to learn more about this topic through our conversation. New episodes are released every other Friday. If you have any questions, please send them to at TCIA Podcast on Twitter or to at The Color and Art on Instagram. At the end of each episode, I'll answer any questions sent. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a five-star rating or review as it helps me and the podcast so much. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you all have an amazing weekend.